Good morning and welcome to our first Pathfinder podcast, where we're talking to companies to discuss their journeys on adopting AI and data into their business. The goal of this podcast is to document how AI and data are being used by companies to drive sales, improve operational efficiencies and manage supply chain. A little while ago, I caught up with John Savage, a machine learning scientist at Overstock, about how they use data to drive sales at their e-commerce platform. Overstock is currently hiring data scientists and machine learning engineers, so if you're interested in a job in the west of Ireland, check out their careers page. Good morning, John. Thanks very much for joining us on our first ever podcast. You're a data scientist at Overstock, which is an e-commerce company based in Sligo, but maybe you can give people a bit of a background from where you came from before that? Yeah, um, so I was a chemist by training, so did chemistry in, in Galway, then went and did a PhD in theoretical computational chemistry in University of Chicago. So I was there for about five years. And through that, kind of got interested in analyzing data and running simulations and, and learning how to code and everything like that. So when I was moving back to Ireland, data science was booming at the time. So it was pretty obvious to, to make the transition over data science. So got an internship at IBM, working on chemistry-related ML. So it was a nice halfway home. Uh, then worked in Deutsche Bank, then worked in a, a biotech startup for a couple of years called Neuritas. And that was great. Using machine learning to help discover drugs in food. So a lot of really good experience there of how to how to build good data products. So you know we were kind of starting everything from scratch. So how to how to go from nothing to gathering as much data as possible on all of the lab work, all of the lab experiments, everything there, how to gather up and then make something useful out of that. And then finally moved home to Sligo just last year, March last year, and have been working at Overstock ever since. And as you said, they're, a, they're an e-commerce company, mostly concentrating on, on furniture in the US. And so uh, I'm working on the, the ranking team there. So that uh, is all about how to, if whatever user does a search on the site, what should we show them? So like, it's interesting that you come from a chemistry background, because a lot of people assume machine learning engineers and data scientists come from computer science backgrounds but that's generally actually not the case exactly yeah how did you find that transition um i think it's a pretty natural transition i think it's i think it's starting to change now as as data science has become more of an unknown quantity and people are i guess training more specifically for, for data science and machine learning but i think a lot of the skills needed for machine learning work are kind of curiosity and understanding data and knowing what questions to ask of the data and knowing when you've answered or asked the right question of the data. So they're all really scientific questions. I guess that's why kind of data science is, the, is in there. So it makes sense that an awful lot of the people who, especially in the early days of data science, were people who had experience analyzing a lot of data and asking questions of, of their of their own scientific niche of data. I think for most of those people, it was a pretty it, it's a generally a pretty easy transition over to asking those questions in finance or e-commerce or, or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's something that people don't really expect. Like my background is actually in physics, and almost everyone I was in college with is now working as a data scientist. As you mentioned, the Nuri test there, we actually met before. It's almost five years ago. Yeah, I think of roughly five years ago, yeah. Yeah, I, I was looking over it. It was February 2017 at the AI Hackathon in Dublin, which I remember I had just started learning Python at the time. I think I'd done about a week of Python at the time, and I went along to kind of 
basically get more exposure. And I ended up on a team with you. And I think Pavel was one of the other members. And yeah, I can't remember the other guy's name. I think. Yeah, he was the, the business, the business focused. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we won that one, I think, because of his his business focus. I think he he was great. I think that's a, a good uh, overarching theme, I think, probably for today is that you know, we were all right, we were all right on the technical side, but he really drove things forward on on what we should build and, and how to sell what we built. And I think we we won yeah. based on the on the strength of the idea um and, and then what we built. So that was that was good. Okay, so talking about basically how data science works in Overstock, then can you give us an overview of like what Overstock uses data science for? Yeah, sure. So um, Overstock is a pretty data-led company from the beginning. So e-commerce in general has to be pretty data-led. So machine learning specifically, we use machine learning for ranking recommendation on one side so that's all about deciding or helping to show the right product to to users at, at the right time so when they come onto our site when they do a search when they browse to the site what is the products that we should should show them and what order should we show them in so that's a really interesting machine learning project and then the other main area would be what we call core machine learning and that's all about deciding what should the prices of the products be, what should the sales amounts we put on the products, what products should go on sales, stuff like delivery time estimation, stuff like um, what time of day should we send out the emails to, to users. So a lot, of, a lot of real complex, a lot of economists end up on that team because it's a lot about pricing and about the elasticity that comes from deciding if I put this on sale for 5% more, how much more sales will I get out of that? So it's really, really complex and uh, really interesting work. Yeah, I think uh, people underestimate the value of like price optimization. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that, that's a huge driver of our business model. Our business model is uh, putting things on sale so that we, where our core customers are what we call the savvy shoppers who are, are looking for deals and you know they get a buzz out of, trawling the internet and finding what they want at the best price and then getting a buzz out of, of getting a deal on that so the majority of our products are on sale at some stage during the year and that helps drives these savvy shoppers to us to get the deal but we have to, to understand how much can we put something on sale by and still get the benefit of uh, of sales and, and volume so it's a real tricky balancing act and but it's a yeah it's a interesting product and so then under kind of underpinning all that would be a huge kind of data landscape that would also be used for reporting and analytics on, on how all this is running and then there would be an awful lot of data analytics into what's a b testing so any changes that get made on our site whether it's uh, changing the header from red to blue or or changing out an ml algorithm we will split every all users into one of two buckets so they'll get either the red banner or the blue banner and we will track that for let's say a month and we will see which got them the best click-through rate or purchases so there's a huge amount of infrastructure on analyzing that data and figuring out what's the best way we can build our site interesting right so just kind of get an idea of the motivation within the company what is it that motivates the data science team is it like around trying to grow your customer lifetime value or is it around increasing the spending on a site at any given time yeah i think the two main things that we track are, are kind of revenue 
per visitor and conversions per visitor. Conversions, right. Uh, so, and that's all about customer satisfaction. If, if the customer comes onto the site and buys something, then we know essentially that we've done a good job there, right? So we know that they've been able to come on, find what they need and be able to purchase it. So conversions per visitor is a huge driver of everything that we do. It's, that's our North Star metric, I guess you would say. And that's a lot of our A-B tests would be looked at that. So we want to know whether our customers are able to come on and find what they're looking for. And that's like, you know, I'm looking at through the, the ranking ends really because, you know, that's what drives us is we want product findability to be really high on the site. So we're looking at, can the user get on there, find what they're looking for and, and purchase it. So, yeah. But then, you know, obviously as a company, you're always going to, to drive revenue as much as possible. So as well as just a conversion world to look to, to drive general revenue on the site as well. So that's another avenue that, that we, another lens we look at um, a success through. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, so, I know from experience in dealing with companies that I've worked with in the past that often the biggest obstacles to implementing a new data science solution isn't the technical aspects of it, but often navigating the internal mechanisms within the company because data science tends to be kind of a cross department area. So I'm just curious, like, what obstacles do you typically encounter? So for our listeners, like, um, they'll largely be companies who are kind of looking at starting this. Yeah, yeah. They're going to hit these obstacles. So I'm just curious, like, what obstacles have you hit and how do you navigate those those internal barriers and perhaps even sometimes uh, certain personalities as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the biggest, just looking, like I'm only at the company about two years, but I think the biggest sea change that happened with our ML organization was when we got a champion for our group at the C-suite level. And that was a person who had, she came over from, from Etsy and she was able to champion the work that we were doing in ML. And I think that's really crucial for machine learning in particular. I think for any project, you know yourself, but I think for machine learning in particular, there's there's this weird mixture of over expectations for what ML can do, but also a kind of not an understanding of what it can really do to drive revenue for any particular business. So she had come from an e-commerce site, Etsy, which was really, really strong on ML and using ML incredibly well to drive success in their business. So when she came over, she was able to understand what ML could do in at Overstock and was able to communicate and sell that vision clearly to the C-suite. And once she was there, it seemed around her then real success started to come because she was able to bring the resources in needed to drive successful ML projects. So just kind of talking about obstacles, we were lucky that in general, the company didn't have the obstacle of starting from scratch with data. Like I said, there's a really strong culture of data in the company from the start. So that kind of idea of A-B testing and reporting was a, a really solid foundation on which to build everything off. So, you know, once you have that data infrastructure in place, so we had, you know, all the, the pipelines to gather the data, store it, and people were doing analytics off the top of that. So that kind of set things up with a really strong foundation. But then to put in the, the algorithms, the monitoring, and the, the good engineering to, to put it into production, that was what, what she was able to bring on top of that and, and bring in the, the vision of, here's what we need to build, here's how we're going to build it and, and really kind of champion what we're doing. And yeah, I think that's the biggest obstacle that probably was faced before that was just the lack of 
because there was always a bit of ranking, there was always a bit of recommendations, but someone in there is saying like, this is where we need to go. This is the massive changes that we can make here. And this is how we go about it. That's really great. I've found in the past that unless you can get buy-in from, yeah. from one person on the C-suite, yeah. then it just doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It, it yeah. always happened at a, at a small scale, I think, with us. But I think right now it's really been understood as a really core driver of revenue. So, so ML is driving these huge changes in revenue and profit that Overstock has been getting over the last couple of years. So it's a positive feedback loop. But once she was able to show, she kind of drove the changes we were going to do, then those changes happened. And because there was that solid kind of like reporting and analytics, we're able to objectively show that there was like an X percent increase in revenue due to this change. And so that meant that she was vindicated in what she was doing so that meant more resources which meant we could make more changes which and we were able to track positive outcome of those changes and so it's a self-fulfilling loop of once you get that champion and who knows what what should be built and how to build it then it's all kind of been a positive spiral yeah thanks for mentioning that we found it's just impossible to move forward without that you probably found this as well like if you're i found past that when i'm dealing with other developers who don't have any experience in machine learning when you talk to them about building a, pro- a project and you're bringing them in on it because they're typically used to working with components that do a certain job a certain like a certain way and you know what the yeah. outcome is going to be when you talk to them about an ml project they then ask okay well what's this going to do mm-hmm. and you tell them that you hope it's going to do x and their assumption is okay well x is the outcome but the reality yeah. is with ml is that you hope it's going to do X, but the project is really an experiment. And the uncertainty around that, it makes people feel uncomfortable. So without that C-suite buy-in, it's, yeah. it's impossible, really. That's it, yeah. And I think that that, that permission to fail is a, is a big, uh, a real important aspect of, of data science, I think. I think in anything creative, you you're always need that permission to fail. But I think personally that the science, you know, when you're doing any sort of science, you know, you need to, you need to fail many, many times before you kind of crack the answer. And so I think that's a really important aspect for, for the business side in particular, for them to understand that, you know, there are potentially going to be many failures before we get to the point where we, we've got, a, you know, a huge win. And I think it's on us then to, to be able to, to translate those failures into, we're not just failing, we're learning. And so here's the learn from this failure that we had in, in this iteration. Here's the learnings we got out of it. Here's how we're going to um, improve that for the next one. Um, and again, for the next iteration, here's what failed, here's what we learned, and here's what we're going to improve the next one. And, you know, finally getting to the point where we've got, we've got a big win. So I think it's a two-way street. I don't think, um, I don't think, you know, we get a free pass on saying data science is hard and just trust us for a year. There is that two-way street where communication is a massive, massive part of data science because otherwise it can just be a black box of, of failure. And I think you really just hit the nail on the head of what data science is in general there when you said it's really about giving permission to fail. On. Yeah, yeah on these things um so because overstock has been around for quite a while like it's over 20 years now i think pushing 25 years and you mentioned that like because you're an e-commerce platform that has been like core to the operation people assume that then it's easy for a company like that to adopt data science but that's generally it's not quite as simple as that often so i'm just curious like in terms of the adoption like what was the experience gathering data together because that's generally coming from different departments yeah so we would have there would have been two ways to store so 
all data is, is kind of gathered with us. So again, like I said, that was that was one of the, the strengths that we had starting off as, a, as an ML org, that the, you know, there was a solid data platform there where all the data was stored. But just because data is stored doesn't mean it's, it's valuable. You know, the idea of data, information is better than data and knowledge is better than information, that kind of like hierarchy. So you have, you know, it's all well and good for the data to be stored, but if you're not taking value out of that, then it's no good. So it was stored in two different ways. I, data warehouse and a data lake. A data warehouse takes a lot of the transactional data from e-commerce so, and then stores it in a way which is easy for analysts to work on. And then a data lake, and it's usually very, very structured, but it means you can do large analytics workload in a, in a way that you wouldn't be able to do on a, let's say, a Postgres database. And then a data lake stores much more unstructured data sets. And an example of that would be what is the, the history of a user on our site? What's everything they clicked on, what's everything they've seen, what's everything they purchased, what showed up on their uh, page in what order. So you can imagine that's a really complex data set. It's not going to fit into a, a, a database. That's a big, huge, tangled mess of, of JSON. And so that gets stored in what's known as a data lake. So they were all being stored. We had the data warehouse and the data lake. But in the last probably three years, as the MLR kind of grew, the idea of taking value out of the, those data sets and, and turn them into, into much more valuable data sets in a repeatable, reliable way. That's the kind of other crucial key aspect of it. So that was um, data engineers and uh, ML engineers designing Scala and Spark pipelines to say, okay, let's read through this, this data set in the data lake, extract out the information that we need out of it. How many times does this product click? How many times did this user click? Extract out kind of the useful information out of it and store that in, in a new SIM data set, which we can then use to run our machine learning model. Yeah, so I think that's the kind of key aspect of it is like it's all well and good storing your data, but you need repeatable, reliable pipelines to extract the information for your particular project or for it to be any use. You were talking there a lot about user data and obviously privacy with some of the things that have happened in the last 12 months. Privacy is yeah. at the top of everyone's mind. Yeah. So how do you manage privacy? What type of techniques do you use to ensure that? Yeah, so we've kind of gone a different route with personalization and, and how we how we personalize the site for users. So we're not doing it based on a user. We're doing it based on a user's behavior. And so that gives us the nice advantage that we're not personalizing. When you land on our site, we're not focusing on you as a person. We're focusing on you as your behavior. And so that does two nice things. It means that we don't need to store as much personally identifiable information about you as an individual. So that gets us around that tricky aspect. But it also means that we can be much more flexible around how we view you as a, as a, as a shopper. Because, you know, you can go onto our site and be shopping for a couch for your sister now that she's moved house. Or you could be shopping for a carpet for your, your rental property. Or you could be shopping for, for Christmas gifts. So they're all very different behaviors. And it means that we're not thinking about you as a user. We're thinking about you as your behavior at those different times. So that means that, yeah, we are less dependent on personally identifiable information. So anything like that is highly locked down. And you know only data scientists with the required need are, are able to access personally identifiable information. You know Anything that is looking at user behavior, they would have access to it. But in general, we don't have access to that unless our project needs it. That's a really cool approach. I haven't heard of people taking that approach before of working on identifying user behavior as opposed to using identifying yeah. people. Was that... Uh, so the, the, key, the key kind of like breakthrough, so the key like requirement for that is real-time data pipelines. Yeah. And so that's, 
that's where we're getting to the kind of like the sharp end of things like and i think that's something that's you know once we had all of the previous pieces i talked about in place having the real-time data pipeline in place so that we have it's relatively easy to build a machine learning model that when you do a search it will give you a real-time prediction back it's tougher to do it it's feeding data from let's say your last five clicks so what are the last five things you clicked on we need a pipeline in place that's collecting those clicks bringing them back through the site store aggregating that kind of information and storing that in a in what we call a feature store so that we can make predictions the next time based on your last five clicks so being able to do that in a, an efficient manner is what allows us to do that, that sort of prediction that's really cool was the decision to do that based on privacy uh, motivation or was it or did you identify that maybe that focusing on user behavior gave you better performance and, and delivered more value for your customers that was the that was the theory, yeah. Because you know, I think we've all been frustrated by going to e-commerce sites and you're still getting recommended that whatever those flippers that you you bought for your holiday five years ago, you know. And so that's when the user-centric recommendations and, and ranking is that it's a weak point. And so we wanted to move away to that and kind of more focus towards like what are you shopping for kind of right now? We've all been criticizing a lot of the bigger e-commerce platforms, one in particular, that yeah. if a user was to buy, say, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the next recommended product will be Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah, yeah. And that's not really useful because if someone is a Harry Potter fan, you don't need to recommend the next Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. and that's all about diversity of results. That's a lot of work that goes into the recommendation team, which I would be kind of linked to, is how do you give diverse results? So kind of that links into that. Like we don't want to recommend the same old, same old. You don't want to recommend the seven Harry Potter books. You want some more diversity in there. So it wants it needs to be close enough to what what the user is searching for, but but also have some variety and diversity in those search results. And a lot of research uh, is in that area uh, these days. Fascinating to actually finally get talking to someone who's working on that. And and not uh, just I guess for this audience as well. I think there's a lot of good. Uh, I can I can send you links of from Eugene Yan of like how you know what I'm talking about is like diversity and stuff and real time recommendations like you know that's the kind of the sharp end of things but you you know that's we're we're eking out the the one percent kind of like benefits increases whereas like you know you can get eighty percent of the benefit from very 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 simple recommendation systems so just for any any kind of like users out or, you know people out there who are kind of trying to get this thing kicked off you can very very quickly. You know, get good recommendations by, you know, start one, recommend the most popular things on your site, you know, kind of step two, recommend most popular and most similar and, you know, get a huge amount of benefit out of that and then start layering on. as you get more revenue and more sales out of that, you know, layering on these more advanced techniques. I think that's a great point because people think that people start thinking about recommender systems and think Netflix have to redeploy their recommender systems like several times a day because there's so much infrastructure behind it. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's only because, as you said, they're really squeezing out the last percentage of yeah. performance out of it. But when you're starting off, mm-hmm. as you said, you, you can take a much more simple and generalized approach. Yeah. Then pulling all those components together uh, requires different teams working together. Like what what different departments had to like have to come together to make an ML project a success? I think we would have a lot of interaction with data engineering, obviously, and and the big data team. So, you know, how do we how do we get the data sets for trading? How do we get that those real time data pipelines? We would have then a lot of interaction with with front end teams. So, how you know how do the our data products show up on the site? You know, and how do we track the 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 user engagement with that so that we can kind of improve our models? So, they'd be, I guess, the major 
the major components. And then within our teams, we would have a pretty wide variety of, of skill sets. Kind of, if you're familiar with kind of the, the T-shaped um, individual where a lot of people kind of are, are good generalists and they will generally have a, you know one area where they're very, very strong in. So you might have a data scientist who's very strong on the on the machine learning side. We might have an engineer who's very strong on the, the real-time data side, an engineer who's very strong on deploying the models, one who's very good at training, the, bringing in the data in. So with enough of those, they're probably the, the main skill sets that we, we need. You know, if we have a team of, of those types of people, we can build kind of strong, strong data products. You mentioned something there, and maybe if you could explain the difference between data data engineering team and a data science team to our listeners. Yeah, I guess there'd be a lot of overlap, but I think of them personally as a platform team. So they are underlying everything that we do. So whether you're on the ranking team or the, the recommendations team or the, the core ML team, you know, different verticals, you need access to the data to do what you're doing. So the data engineering team kind of lie underneath all of them and they take in the batch mode, they're taking Let's say all of the logs from our site that has been tracking our user behavior and moving that into our, our data lake. So again, repeatable, reliable pipelines from those logs into our data lake that stores all that information for the ML team and then bringing the data into the data warehouse, then in the, in the real-time mode as well. So that, that would be kind of like classic data engineering where you'd be taking data in batch, let's say daily or moving data from around into, into different places. But now real-time has become such a huge component of what's been done at Overstock. There'd be another huge specialty of people working on tools like Kafka or Pulsar, where you're moving data in, in real-time from when a user clicks on something, that signal gets sent through this real-time infrastructure so and gets stored in a data set so that we can immediately action something off the back of that. So yeah, data engineering is all about like repeatedly reliably. Uh, moving data from from A to B for for different use cases, analytics, machine learning, whatever it may be. Uh, yeah, I think people underestimate the distinct value of both. Yeah, and I think getting started, I think a lot of people would maybe looking at machine learning from the outside, they might think, oh, I need to get a, a data science, say a data scientist in here. But in general, I think getting the data engineer in first and getting, because I found that certainly in my in the startup days. Of, you know, I went in as a data scientist and very rapidly kind of got pulled left into more of a data engineering role because it was just so much more important to get data into a format that was repeatable and reliable. I keep saying it, but it's so important to get that data for then data scientists to be able to work off. So getting a data engineer in and getting data into a reliable structure is essential for the data scientist. If you don't have that, you know, you're wasting your time with the data scientist. Okay, um, so just uh, before we wrap up, could you give people an overview of the type of toolings you use, more so from a beginner level? Yeah. Uh, just so that our audience can get familiar with the type of things that they're needed going, going to introduce into their organizations? Yeah, I think maybe it's hard to, again, like I said, you know, you said Overstock's been around 20 years and, you know, the data side has been around for, for close to that. So there is a lot of, of big data infrastructure in place that maybe isn't necessary for certain users kind of starting off in previous work we only just use a, a single postgres database so but for us we're, we're needing to use 
we're using Hadoop at the minute, but we would move to, we're looking at moving towards more a cloud-based storage infrastructure instead of that. So I think if I was starting now, you would be looking at some sort of cloud-based S3 or Google cloud storage kind of infrastructure to store your data. And then you get a lot of the advantages of, of cloud infrastructure where you can query that data. So once you have your data in place, then we need some sort of way to train. We need something to train our models. So we use Spark, or a lot of Python packages to train our, our models. So if you're looking at massive amounts of data, Spark is a great tool set, but, and I think there are, there are Python bindings. So, you know, you can get data scientists to come in and, and use that pretty well. If you're not using massive data, then uh, maybe you don't need Spark. You can get away with other tools, maybe, you know, something like Pandas for doing, for moving your, your data around. And so then you have the kind of classic machine learning techniques, as scikit-learn or PyTorch, if you want to go towards the deep learning route. We use a, a linear regression tool called Maupal Rabbit, which is essential for us at the speed we need to do. We need to have responses back in 100 milliseconds. So we need a, a prediction tool that's that's ultra fast, so that fits the bill. And then for training, you need some sort of uh, orchestrator. So you need some tool that's going to, train your model regularly so that you're getting the, the most up-to-date data into your model. So if you have data that, that's constantly updating and you need to retrain your model to catch any any changes. So we have a lot of seasonality, let's say, so, you know, where people, the buying behavior would change very rapidly from, from week to week and month to month. So we need to retrain our models constantly. So to like Airflow, is is one that's pretty simple to, to get up and running. So you can move your to move your uh, your your data around with airflow and you can retrain your models with airflow. I don't know is that in, in the weeds there is it? I think there's still a lot of value in that for people starting off just giving them an, an idea of yeah. basically what they're going to need to look at introducing. Um, but you mentioned an interesting point that I forgot to even bring up earlier was the fact that you're redeploying models regularly. Yeah. So when we work with different companies, every time we engage with a company, there's always an assumption that, okay, you can just build an AI model, deploy it and leave it there. And it will continue working perfectly perpetually yeah. uh, into the future. Yeah. But yeah. Maybe if you, if just before we wrap up, actually, if you could just give us an idea of like how often you do have to redeploy models and, and why. Yeah. I think that's the kind of final, and like we talked about data engineering and we talked about kind of data science. I think there's another field coming along that's called machine learning engineering that finishes that maybe life cycle where if you want to put your data science into production, you need to be thinking about it from an engineering point of view, not, as you said, like kind of a build it and, and kind of build it and then it's done. You need to be looking at this as a product I have built and, and needs to be maintained. So we're redeploying our models every single day. Uh, our new model gets trained every single day and, and deployed. We have monitoring uh, on that constantly looking for any sort of errors, any sort of latency increases, you know, all of the specific type of errors, looking at the predictions that are being made and, and looking to make sure that they're within within what we would expect, that there's no what's called kind of drift that's happening. Some pandemic hasn't turned up and made all your predictions totally haywire. So yeah, I think that engineering aspect has been something that I've been really, really uh, excited to learn at Overstock. They're are really, really strong on that engineering aspect. A lot of the team, again, think about this from the engineering first and the data science kind of second. How do we get this data product out into production really reliably? Because it's it's much better to have an okay product running all the time than a really good product that, that doesn't run that often. I think that's something, there's a lot of tools coming out there in the what's called the ML ops space that are helping to make that. Uh, we had to build a lot, the guys 
built all that out, you know, over the last three, four years. But now there are a lot of tools out there like Selden, Kubeflow, and kind of monitoring solutions that help make that a lot more easy. So I think it's something that as kind of we'll see over the next few years, that'll become easier and easier and just become the, the de facto. But I think it's again, you know, more similar to DevOps, it's a mindset. You have to you have to be thinking about this. Um, I'm going to be I'm going to be maintaining this over the next many, many years. It's not, as you said, something that's set and forget. That wraps up our first ever Pathfinder podcast. I'd like to thank John Savage from Overstock for joining us today. As I mentioned at the very start, Overstock are currently hiring data scientists and machine learning engineers. So if you're interested, head on over to their careers page. Next week, I'll be talking to David Bow from 86 about using data for product ranking and demand forecasting in the food industry. Mm-hmm.